Hey guys, welcome to Today's the Day with Zach Anderson. This episode is brought to you by Alchemy Sales Coaching. I hope you guys enjoy. What up, what up, what up, everybody? Welcome back to Today's the Day with Zach Anderson. I'm excited for today. Before we get started on any of it, Alex, thank you so much for being here. I know how busy you are firsthand. Um, and you've taken a lot of time out today to be with me. So I appreciate you for being here first off. Thank you. Thanks for the invitation. It's going to be a lot of fun. I know your kids are going to be stoked. They've been waiting for me to get you on here. So they're very excited. <laughs> um, for those of you guys that don't know, today's guest, Alex Dunn, without a shadow of a doubt, one of the most impactful, influential, like father figures in my life. Um, so this will be a really special episode for me. I'm excited for it. It's going to be a lot of fun. But those of you guys that don't know, um, Alex or his background at all. I have a little bit here and then we're going to dive in depth on all of it, but grew up in Salt Lake Sydney or Salt Lake City, Sydney, Australia, Auckland, New Zealand and Brazil. You're the fourth of five children. You served a mission in Atlanta, Georgia. And then after that, you attended BYU, graduating with your degree in uh, sociology and a minor in business. The first company, and I didn't know some of this, so this is new to me. We we're just talking a little bit before we started recording. First company you started was called Elbow Grease Enterprises. Um, then you were the co-founder and CEO of Lava Storm. You were the co-founder at Vivint Solar. You were at Vivint for a long time, serving as the president of Vivint. You were the deputy chief of staff for Mitt Romney. Is that the right title? That's yep. what it was. And then retired temporarily, and now one of the managing partners at Larry H. Miller. So, and that's probably half of it. There's probably way more to it, but um, that's a little bit about Alex. So really quick again, Alex, thank you for being here. Favorite thing to do is kind of rewind it all the way back. I actually didn't know you grew up in all those different places. And I'm curious as to the dynamic on that Salt Lake city first, or let's rewind to the very start. Where was that? I was born in Salt Lake city. And then when I was five, I moved to Sydney, Australia. And, um, for what reason? My dad was essentially serving in our church, um, in, different callings, uh, different responsibilities in, in our church. And so that took us to Sydney, Australia. My first, um, I vaguely remember life before, um, before we, Sydney, before Sydney, we lived on this pretty steep hill and I could remember like I'd ride like my big wheel down this hill and like kind of drift, kind of drift around the corner. Which now looking back, I'm like, I don't know why my mom let me do that because I had to have been going like 40 miles an hour on this. As a four year old. Yeah, like <laughs> as a pretty little kid. But Australia is my first real memories of life, like going to school, you know, the thing I can like remember it vividly. And then um, when I was seven, we moved to New Zealand. Mm. And um, when I was 10, we moved back to the U.S. And I actually had like a really strong accent um, when we moved back. Everyone thinks that's cool. But back then, like it was before like Crocodile Dundee had become cool. So, so people, you were not cool. People just made fun of my accent. They called me the proper talker. Um, <laughs> and I, I kind of bummed you lost the accent. I actually honestly. have recordings from when I was a little kid that we sent to my like grandma that like where it's a full on like it's it's a mixed accent because it was both Australian and New Zealand, which are different accents. But I remember going to play baseball for the first time because I grew up playing like rugby and cricket. And so in cricket, there's not really a concept. You run to the wicket you're not at. There's no like concept of direction. Yeah. And so when I remember, I still like remember this, like what I was thinking I got up to hit the ball and there was a guy on first base. So I'm like, well, I can't run there. So I like ran to third base. Like <laughs> and that, you were you the know, all-star. That, that didn't game. really help me for not like sticking out um, with my accent. And I'm running to third base playing baseball um, after I hit the ball. But so we moved back and then in junior high, um, we moved to Brazil and then mo I moved back when I was in high school and finished high school in Salt Lake. That's the stuff I didn't actually know about. As far as business ventures, I've, I've like heard little stories and whatnot, but I have actually never heard about you growing up and moving around a lot. So that was really cool for me. When you said you moved back, you moved back or your family moved back to finish high school? Family. The, the whole, every back. time I moved, okay, it cool. was my whole family. Cool. That's way cool. Yeah. And then coming back, you finished high school in, in Utah and then you served a mission out in Atlanta, Atlanta area. Yeah. Right. I went to BYU for a year 
And then I served a mission in Atlanta, which was awesome. I loved it. It was a, a great experience for me. I served like 21 of the 24 months in the inner city. And so that was definitely a pretty unique um, experience. One of the awesome things about missions is you, you get to have experiences and get to become friends with people that you would never naturally cross paths with cross paths with that to this day, I'm like still friends with. That's really, really cool. So obviously from growing up to the, to the mission up until your adult life. And then even since then, obviously knowing you, your church has played a huge role in your life, like a massive role. And I'm assuming that obviously stemmed with, because your dad was serving, serving the church is why you moved around. Right. Yep. What was the dynamic growing up? That's one thing I've always been curious about as well. You're the fourth of five, correct? Yep. Dynamic growing up. What was that like? I i didn't move around growing up. I'm not at all familiar with that at all. Like, what is that dynamic? So honestly, and, and this is what later led to us um, wanting to actually move kind of somewhere else um, mm-hmm. to give our kids that same experience, which we just moved back from Puerto Rico. We were down there for a couple of years, but I think for me, looking back as an entrepreneur, I think maybe my most important lessons were actually taught to me by uh, moving around. Absolutely. Um, It was always very hard to move. Like you're kind of coming out of a comfort zone. You're moving somewhere where you don't know people. Um, You stick out, you, you know, and so you have to learn how to adapt. It always felt a little bit, like the end of the world when you moved. Cause it's yeah. like, Oh my gosh, I'm leaving all this that I know and I don't want to leave. And you go, the thing I learned is by the time I was, you know, ready to move from wherever we had moved to, I felt the same way. So I kind of learned a pattern that like when you feel like kind of it's the end of the world and like, it's, it's not. not, it's actually not like yeah. you, and so I learned that actually time and time again. I remember moving to Brazil and just I was a teenager and I was not happy. And now I ended up loving it and having awesome friends. And that pattern like was one a really, really important lesson. Having to, you know, kind of be OK with uncertainty that you're not totally sure how this is going to turn out. Yeah. Um, and that it actually, at least in my circumstance, it always turned out really well. Yeah. So those were like some of the key lessons that as I look at as an entrepreneur, it's like, what do you have to be good at? I think to to have some success as an entrepreneur. And a lot of it is like you have to be kind of have some courage going into situations where you're like this. This could not turn out well. Yeah. And and be okay with that uncertainty, like be okay, kind of sitting in that, you know, uncomfortableness. And so. I look and say, hey, was college like my most important thing was and I'd say, honestly, it was like growing up and moving around. Yeah. Is what prepared me the most to kind of be an entrepreneur. If anyone's listened to any of the episodes, one of the most common, common trends and like with anybody that we've had on is all of these things that seem like massive trials or end of the world things end up being the the things that you are, including my, my personal life, like the things you're the most grateful for because you learn more than anything from it. Like if I were to go to an eight-year-old or a teenager and say, hey, what's the worst thing that could happen in your life? Their list of top five moving to a different country would be on there. <laughs> For, don't, I would, I would absolutely sure. assume that. But then, so in the moment, that, that seems like the worst thing. And there's tons of other examples. Like we, we've had other guests on where the craziest things happen that seem like the end of the world. And those are actually really, really defining moments. And I think it's cool that young and diving into when you guys moved to Puerto Rico, you'll probably talk about why you guys did that, that young going and experiencing that I bet shaped like you just said, everything else, every other business you're a part of everything. Cause you, you now recognize this might look really bad on the surface, but if I just like stick it out and get through it, leaving this situation is going to look really bad too, which means it was actually great. Yeah. Right. Which is, that's super cool. I like that. So then served a mission, which in my experience, a lot of, a lot of people that I talk to a mission is kind of their first time to go and grow up. I'm going to actually, I'm curious what your opinion would be. I, I moving around as much as you did when you were young, probably grew you up a lot quicker than most kids grow up. It was interesting in Brazil for whatever reason, like the expats, the people that had moved there from the U S we're just crazy. I mean, and I don't, Brazil's kind of a different culture, definitely more open to kind of everything. 
And so you'd get some of these, you know, kids from the U.S. down there, and they were, I mean, and I, you know, I was just still in junior high, but, like, I mean, I was exposed to everything. I had to decide, well, what, you know, it's like not what my mom and dad believe, but, like, what do I believe and who am I going to be? Yeah. And I was kind of forced to do that because I'm like, well, it's all, like, I mean, it was all readily available, everything. Yeah. And so that, you know, was, a, again, another really important lesson for me where, for me, I actually think, like, one of the keys to finding peace in your life where you're like truly happy um is that you've chosen your own path that you have like made the choice and that you're not living your life in a way that other people are kind of expecting you to live and so those experiences even help me as a father it's like hey my you know my kids actually like the key to them and i have i i share with them like what's important to me and the lessons I've learned and things that have worked for me. Yeah. But I ultimately know it's like, they're the ones that are going to have to choose like what it is that they believe and what path they're going to follow. And in that kind of authenticity is where you find, I think a lot of fulfillment and kind of happiness. And so those are all lessons again, that like I learned. And so when I went to Brazil, there was this kid, I remember that was like, I'm going to get you drunk. Like, you know, you're, and actually at the beginning, kind of everybody was like, we're going to, you know, get you to do all this stuff. And I'm like, I, I don't want to, I, you know, that's not my thing. And by the end, he was like the only one. Everybody else was actually like protective of me. They'd be like, hey, he doesn't do that. You know, they were the that's ones cool. who were. Yeah. And those were, again, lessons that like, I'm not sure I would have learned had I just stayed in like one place with one group yeah, of friends were, and. Yeah. Your environment forced you to figure out who you were and stay true to it. Yeah. Rather than your environment being so catered to what you know, you don't have to try to uphold anything. It, exactly. That makes a lot of sense. That's really, really cool. So straight out the gates, like literally going the very first thing you were a part of while you were still in college, right? Yeah. Talk about that a little bit. Your little so corporation you shout, started. Shout out to Ryan Hunt, my friend who like actually played basketball at the U. He's a good friend of mine. Um, for Rick Majerus, but in Utah, there's like a pollutant in the air that like sticks to aluminum siding, like aluminum and vital siding, and kind of is this black. It like doesn't like spray off. And that was the whole value proposition for siding was like, it's like super easy to take care of. In Utah, there was this pollution that would like stick. And his brother, Ryan's brother, like it bugged him and he was like trying to find it. So he found this product that like actually like cleaned off that pollution. And he told his brother, Ryan, he's like, Hey, you should like that. You should like go start a business, like kind of instead of like painting houses, you'd like go clean this, this pollution off of the aluminum siding that just couldn't be like sprayed off. You know? Yeah. So Ryan and I started a company. I think I still have a t-shirt of it. Like that's a W saying you like, definitely do elbow, elbow grease enterprises. And we went door to door and like would go clean like aluminum siding. And the funny thing was, is that, I mean, he, he played on really good basketball teams at the U. Yeah. He was, he would go knock on doors and people would be like, a university Utah basketball players knocking on our door. And we're like, Hey, can we clean, you know, the <laughs> aluminum siding? Um, I loved it because it was, it required lots of different things. We had to sell, we had to actually do the work. There was a lot of flexibility um, yeah. I bought like a Jeep. I remember from my money, it was like my first kind of like, Oh, I, you can actually like just wake up one day and like go create like value, make money. Yeah. Um, and like say, Oh, here's what I'm going to go do. And you know, like go tell people that's what I do. And then like go do it and get them to pay you money. And it was my first kind of experience where I'm like, Oh, I, that's pretty cool. And so that was really just during college. So it kind of paid for my college. Ryan kind of takes credit for the rest of my career because he's like, hey, I got you started as an entrepreneur. Rightfully so. so. Yeah. Rightfully so. I mean, 
I give him 20% of all I've made, you know, as a commission. <laughs> That's perfect. <laughs> That's so awesome. So that was my first. Elbow like, Grease Enterprises. Elbow Grease Enterprises. That's we the, probably started it in like two hours. It was like, hey, we should go start this business. Like, when okay. people talk about roots, that's what they're talking about. <laughs> those, are your, <laughs> those are your roots. Um, that's amazing. So then that gets you through college and and going through that. That was like your first, I would say your first taste of like exactly what you just said. That was your first taste in entrepreneurship business in general, I assume, unless there was something before that, prior yeah. to that. After that, the, obviously some crazy events and you've held some really cool positions that are going to be really fun to talk about in order after that. So go and you graduate with your, your degree. I hope you guys are enjoying this episode so far. It was brought to you by Alchemy Sales Coaching. Now, I typically don't run ads, um, but I feel very strongly about Alchemy Sales Coaching. I started doing one-on-one coaching with Doug back in 2019. And since then, I have gone and not only blown up in my career and my earnings, um, but it's really helped me through just the ups and downs of life. Now, the reason I feel so strongly about Alchemy is because it's a group of individuals not only focusing on furthering their sales career, but they're diving deep into inner work. Um, and becoming the best version of yourself so you can show up and be the best version of yourself. Um, Not only that, if you have any interest in doing any one-on-one coaching with me, I exclusively do all of my one-on-one coaching through Alchemy. Um, So for full access to me, go and check out Alchemy. I think you'll absolutely love it. It's alchemysalescoaching.com. We will also go and post um, the links in our bio and on stories, et cetera. So go check it out. So let me take, there is one story that comes to mind on was there anything before that, I think everybody has like strengths and weaknesses. Yeah. Like, and that's what makes the world great. Nobody's the same. It's like all different. I think I've always been kind of entrepreneurial. I don't know that I would have said that, but like in New Zealand, there was another kind of missionary church leader that was coming with their family and they had pretty young kids. And the dad was like spending time with my dad. Mm-hmm. So the kids like were, we had like a day to do something. And so I'm like, hey, let's go, like, let's go pick these lemons. And they were like, we had lemon trees and our neighbor did. So we were like picking them off ours and our neighbors. Mm-hmm. And then I'm like, hey, let's go, se- let's go sell these and like see if we can make some money to go buy candy. And so I remember going to the first door, knocking on the door to sell these lemons that we had picked with these from your neighbor's trees. From, uh, yeah. <laughs> I mean, some of them were ours, some were the neighbors. And the lady didn't open the door and said, who are you selling lemons for? I was not prepared to answer that question. And the first thing that came to my head was the Red Cross. And so (laughs) how old were you? I was seven. Like, (laughs) I mean, (laughs) so I said, she had to open the door. (laughs) I said the Red Cross and she opened and bought lemons. I'm like, wow, that worked awesome. So then we sold lemons for the Red Cross the rest of the afternoon. We made a bunch of money. I went and got candy. We went home. And then those kids that were with me, like, told their dad. And then their dad told my dad. And then my dad being, he was amazing. My dad's been passed for a while, but um, was an amazing, amazing dad. And came and sat down with me and was like, hey, tell me what, you know. And I'm like, oh, you know. Well, I then had to like wash the car for like the next month to like Make earn the money to send to the Red Cross. So I made good on my promise to to good make the money. But I'm like, I look back and I'm like, oh, I was seven and I was like willing to like go knock on doors and like, you know, sell lemons that I'd pick from my neighbors. You know, some of yeah. that probably I needed some lessons in like the right way to do stuff, you know, not tell people I was selling lemons for the Red Cross. But um, I've always kind of had that in me. Yeah. Like, um, that's amazing. <laughs> anyway, so sorry. So, so that, quick on your so, toes. <laughs> <laughs> I've never heard that. That's awesome. So that is like, as I look back, I'm like, I've kind of always had a little bit of that in me. And then after, well, really still while I was still in college, um, I'd gone on a mission to Atlanta. I had one of my friends that I'd made in the mission um, a guy named Justin Lindsay. He, when we left our mission, he went back to college, but he was going to MIT. So in Boston and we were good friends. He would come out and see me all the time. And so we had talked about like a bunch of different ideas of businesses that we could start. Yeah. And at MIT at the time, there was like literally this, uh, cork board 
that was called like the job board and people would like post jobs to that like they needed like a software programmer and so he would go to the job board and like you know pull the little phone number that was you know on the thing and call people and like get work and that was how he was kind of working his way through uh, college and he started to realize like he's like I think maybe I could turn this into a business like he had been in a fraternity so he had all these friends at MIT all these super super smart guys some of them who you know like JT Jeremy Oh, really? Yeah, that's how they got to ended up at Vivint was was because I had known them all the way back to my first company. I didn't know that at all. Yeah. Wow. And so he's like, I think we can do a business like we could start a business where we have programmers and we go like, you know. And so um, I helped um, Justin and his wife like start the company. And that was really the second company. And Which was so called what? That was. Um, called Lava Storm. The other thing that was happening, this was in 95, was, um, or really 94, was um, the internet was just starting to become commercialized. And so really what we ended up doing is started building like systems that use the internet because the internet had not really been around commercially available before that. And so we built systems like a system called Edgar Watts that was the first system to use the Internet to deliver SEC documents, which, you know, people who know that world will know what the Edgar system is. Um, we built Family Search for the, the LDS Church. And so we were hired to go build these, you know, technologies because people are like, the Internet's going to disrupt our business. How do we go use it to, you know, and and a lot of that was implemented through technology. And so. We went and started that company, graduated. I graduated from BYU. We moved to Boston, my wife and I. Um, Debbie moved to Boston. She's actually here watching the the podcast here. So, um, and She's making sure you get your facts right. Yeah, exactly. She'll flag us if anything's wrong. Honestly, she is definitely like the best and the best decision I ever made and like the most important factor in any of the success I've had in my career. So why do you say that? Um, I hear you and I agree with you because I love, I, I love yeah, Debbie. You know Why do you say that? Honestly, she, she believed in me more than I believed in myself. So there was a lot of times where I'd come home and be like, I, I don't know if I like, I don't know how to get out of what we're in. Like, you know, something hard, a challenge, we're not going to make payroll, whatever, whatever it was over the years. And she would just like, be like, I know that you can figure it out. And the funny thing is in the time I like would get me mad because I'm like, no, I don't think you're listening. Like, <laughs> I do not know how to get out of this. And you she thought like, she had ignorant belief in you. Yeah, a little bit. <laughs> but she truly believed in me, which at the time was just I just needed a little bit of hope. So it's like, OK, uh, I mean, if Debbie like I don't want to let her down. And so I'm going to keep going. I I don't, I still think this is probably not going to turn out super great, but I'm going to keep going because I do not want to quit for her. Yeah. And so she believed in me more than I believed in myself, you know, probably at the times that were most important. Yeah. And then the other thing is, is that there's, you know, a lot of times people come and ask about like balance. How do you have work-life balance? And I'm like, you don't, it doesn't exist, at least not with me. And so for us, we were a team. And so together, we were able to actually accomplish everything that we wanted to accomplish. Mm. But alone, we neither one of us would have been able. To, well, actually, Debbie probably would have been able to do everything alone. Me, <laughs> I would not have been able to accomplish everything I wanted to accomplish. Yeah. With family and friendships and work th- without her. And yeah. so... Like she's my best friend and the most important factor yeah. to me, like being able to accomplish what we have accomplished. Yeah, that makes that makes perfect sense. It's it, interdependence. Yeah, is, is exactly yeah. what you're explaining. That's that's awesome. So that's we got really a little cool. sidetrack. No, I love it. Yeah, we're good. So going on from Lava Storm, then how long were you a part of that? What was the exit on that? So it was me and Justin and his wife, um, Leanne that were kind of the three partners in the business. We started to grow it. We were really early on the internet, Um, the internet bubble, like the internet whole commercialization started to form. You capitalized on it. And we were like in the middle of that. 
Um, we raised, you know, 60 million in venture capital. It was like everything, everything was going well. I was, I think 27 and I was, I don't know if it's insecure. I just was like, like, I'm like, I'm not sure I was a CEO. Justin was a CTO, but we were, you know, kind of running it together. I'm like, this is moving fast. And I think we could benefit by like having someone that's more experienced. And so one of our clients had been monster.com and Justin had gotten to know the CEO there really well. And so through like really that relationship, um, we brought Miller on as a partner in the business and made him the CEO. And cause it's like, look, we're growing super fast. And, and so like, um, I stepped aside to like on purpose and mainly actually like looking back. And even now, I think some people conflate like being an owner, like is actually your most um, important responsibility. Yeah. And that actually doesn't mean you have to be the CEO or the any title. It's yeah. like being an owner. And as an owner, you should like want to make sure the right person, the is right people are in the right seats. And, yeah. And clearly, he had way more experience than me. So we brought him on. And long story short, essentially Justin and Miller, his name was Miller Newton, like teamed up and like pushed me out of the business. Mm. Um, Miller and I didn't get along super well. So initially I actually moved out to um, from Boston to, to Silicon Valley to open our first office outside of Boston and to really gotcha. come up with the template Cause then the idea was I'll go to London. It was a professional services firm. So, you know, we needed to hire people and be in different markets. So I was going to go open like Silicon Valley, which I did. Then I was like going to kind of create the template and then go open other offices and make sure we're kind of infusing our culture. And as we open different offices Yeah. and Miller and I just, you know, we, kind of didn't get along great. And so that was actually part of the reason why I went to Boston because I'm like, I'll give Miller room to let him do his thing yeah, and be the CEO. I still owned as much of the company as, as Justin and Miller did, but I'm like, I'm fine. I'm like, I want the company to be worth a lot of money so I can, you know, have that Profit. value. Yeah. Uh, but when I, we moved to Boston, I would fly back every week to do like an executive meeting. And I flew back um, I'd fly back on Thursday night, do the red eye, get there Friday morning, meetings on Friday, and then fly back to California on Friday night. It, it was, I hated it. But, um, and I flew back for a meeting and I had dinner with Miller. And then the next day we had meetings. And in the meetings, he announced some pretty big changes he had made to the company. Yeah. And Miller had not told me the like night before. And I was like more mad than I have ever been. I couldn't talk. Like I was so upset that mainly just that he hadn't told me not as whatever role. I can't remember. I was like executive vice president or something. I can't remember what it was, the the title, but mm -hmm. he hadn't told me as, as an, owner. an owner. Yeah. Like that I owned as much, you know, it's like, and so I was super, super mad. And I like left the meeting. I like walked out of the meeting. Mm. and flew back to California. And then Justin and Miller were coming like the next, that next week. And they came and like, essentially like say, Hey, we think it's time for you to move on, which was like devastating to me, honestly. I mean, yeah. it was like super, it was devastating. That I was kept, probably like, one of those moments where you're like, Oh my, like seems like a massive end of the world type moment that yeah. ended up being, it was an important part of my story. I'd learned a ton and I learned a ton starting that company and, one of the things, honestly, that I learned was that I actually was better than I thought I was. Like when we brought Miller on, not that he didn't do a lot of great things. I was better at a lot of things still than Miller was. Even with the experience and the tenure. Yeah. And so maybe part of it was I had unrealistic expectations for what he was going to do for the company. Yeah. And maybe I was a little bit like underselling my own ability. And so when entrepreneurs come and are like, oh, I don't know, I'm like, look, you are good at like the company's going to fail or succeed because of you and you're good enough. Like you can go learn the things you need to learn and do the things you need to do. And so that was a really important lesson that I learned in that whole experience, but it was still, it was, it was devastating for me. And honestly, yeah. it took me probably a few years to kind of get 
my confidence completely back. Yeah. Um, and, and be I like, can imagine. Yeah. Yeah. It, I can imagine. It was very, it was a very hard experience. I'm also competitive. I'm pretty stubborn. And so there was, you know, even though it like rocked me, I was like, I'm, I wanted to go succeed in a way that would prove those guys wrong. Like they, put a little you know, chip they, on your shoulder. Yeah. I had a chip on my shoulder for sure. Yeah. No, I don't anymore for sure. But there was a period of time in my life I had it. I had that chip on my shoulder because of that experience. Yeah. So that happened. Um, You're 27 that, at the time. Yeah, I, w- I was a little bit older, probably 28, you know, 20, 28, 29, something yeah. like that. So we were actually not very far away from going public, probably within six months of going public. And there were companies that we were like as big as that were in our space that were like five, six billion dollar companies. And so I was like, okay, I guess, you know, they don't want me here. And I definitely didn't want to be there if if, you know, Justin and Miller didn't want me there. Yeah. Um, but I'm like, hey, my equity's still gonna be worth a ton of money. And now that was like the first that was the internet bubble where yeah. companies like one day were worth six billion and the next day were like worth nothing. Yeah. And so um, that business actually ended up getting sold. And I think the investors like got their money back, but I didn't really make it, you know, like I didn't create any wealth from that company. Yeah. And I was living in San Jose. And so we decided to actually move back to Boston. My dad had actually, my mom and dad had moved to Boston, which was a really awesome for us because my dad actually ended up dying shortly after that. He was he was really young, 71. And so that time looking back was like I wouldn't have traded that for the world. Yeah. And so I wouldn't had that not happened with Lava Storm, I wouldn't have moved back to Boston and I wouldn't have gotten to spend that last like six months with my dad. And so again, I wouldn't That's crazy. like trade that. It's like, you know, like life has a way of working out. You probably heard this. Steve Jobs in his only commencement address he ever gave you know, said, you can't connect the dots looking forward, only looking back. And so me, like looking back, I'm like, oh, those are dots that like totally connect now. At the time, just felt like chaos and like, you know, the yeah. end of the world. And but I'm like, I wouldn't have been able to spend time. So I moved back to Boston. I became an entrepreneur in residence at a venture capital firm called General Catalyst that was really small and new at the time. Now they're like one of the powerhouses in venture capital and helped them start a business. Um, But I still honestly was on shaky ground. Like I was just like, what am I going to do with my life? And, And then my dad passes away and it was a really hard time for me. Yeah. And honestly, looking back, it's probably even professionally where I look back and say, I probably didn't like give my best mm-hmm. um, but just because I was like unsure of myself. I was like trying to figure it out. It just wasn't, and it wasn't a great fit. And so not that I'm embarrassed, but I feel like, Hey, yeah, that I didn't like totally excel at that during that short period of time. Yeah. And so I helped start that business at general catalyst. Um, I left and um, was actually in the process of moving back to Utah because my parents, had, my dad had passed. My mom was actually moving back to Utah. I felt some draw to kind of maybe be there to help her. And I was, again, just like trying to find my bearings. And this is like not like a day or a week or a month. This was like a couple, this was years like yeah. that I felt like kind of off balance and and trying to figure it out. But it was during this time that I was moving back that Tag uh, Romney called me and said, hey, my dad's thinking about coming back from the Olympics to run for governor. He's like, can you like come help me for a couple days? Like he's asked me to like figure out like how to get on the ballot. There were just some basic things. So I said, oh, oh yeah, like I've gotten to know him pretty well. We were friends and um, and actually had been for a pretty long time. And so I went over to like help him figure out how to, how to get, yeah, how to like, if Mitt wanted to run for governor, how that was going to work. And that like few days turned into three years. So I like stayed on, I like helped run the campaign and then I helped manage the transition. 
And then I was his deputy chief of staff. And actually, Debbie had ended up right when that happened. Debbie, we were moving. Yeah. And so Debbie moved. And I'm like, hey, let me stay here just for a few weeks and kind of help get the campaign started. And then I'll. So she, during the whole campaign, she was in Utah, pregnant, you know, with our third. And I was in Boston, like, on a political campaign, like running Mitts, you know, helping, helping him run for governor. Yeah. And so I was actually living at their house and like, anyway, so again, it was, it was kind of crazy. And so when he won, Debbie came out, we had the big party, you know, the election night party and everyone's going crazy. And she like looked at me and she says, you're not moving back to Utah. You And I'm like, no, yeah, yeah, that's the plan. You know, after the campaign, yeah. Um, but Mitt, you know, was nice enough to ask me to come be, you know, part of the administration when he was governor. And so we did end up deciding, OK, actually, Debbie, you moved back to Boston. <laughs> that was like a little false start there. But it was honestly during the campaign that I can look back now and say that's actually where I like gained my confidence back. Yeah. Where I was involved with something and I had done some things, some really pretty cool things with a campaign called micro targeting where we're using like demographic and psychographic and like all this data on consumers and merging it with political stuff and like predicting like who's likely to, to vote and what they're likely to vote on, which was like actually the first campaign in America that had done that. And, and then it really helped us like actually kind of be the difference in kind of winning or losing yeah a campaign's obviously made up of like lots of things so that wasn't the only thing for sure but but i i for sure felt like oh i actually really contributed to this and mitt's obviously a very successful guy and he you know was complimentary of of what i had done so it was through that process where i kind of got Regained back to a place mojo. where i'm like yeah i kind of got my mojo back um that's awesome and so i did that for two years, I kind of, when I committed to him, I said, Hey, I'll do it for two years, um, at a time. And then we'll kind of see, cause I didn't really think I wanted to be in politics. Yeah. And so after the first two years of the administration, I kind of decided, I knew that he was on a path that could go down the presidential, you know, like he could run for president. And so I was like, do I want to go down this path with him or do I want to do business? And although I really loved being with him and politics and all that, I like, I didn't want that to be my career. And so yeah, said, I'm going to do business. And one of the things I learned from Mitt in being with him all the time, like, you know, we drive out to Western Matt is like, I was with him all the time is he asked, I remember him asking me, he's like, why do you start companies? You know, I'm like, well, I don't, you know, I don't know. Like, cause that, that's, I don't know. Like, that's what I had done. <laughs> and he said to me, he's like, well, why, why wouldn't you like buy a company? It's a lot easier to like go buy a company that's like gotten through the startup, you know, and then you can help grow it. And I'm like, I don't have money to buy one, first of all. And like, can I do that? And he's like, yeah, you can do that. And like, he, he honestly helped me open my eyes to like, oh, I could actually buy a company. Now I have to do it with someone else's money, but I could like go buy a company. Yeah. So when I decided to leave him, I went looking for a company to buy. And that's actually how I like when I started talking to Todd at Apex Alarm. That's um, wild. And put an LOI together to buy 50% of Apex Alarm. And I actually had a group that had committed to fund a deal if I could find it. So I'm like, oh, this is great. I took took like eight or nine months for me to do that. And I was kind of burning through, like I was, I burned through all my savings and then I had, well, starting to actually live like on credit cards and like, you know, to get this deal done. Yeah. So I brought the, I found Apex Alarm. I put them under LOI to buy 50% of the company. I had this investment group here in Utah that wanted to do the deal and they I brought it to, once I got it under LOI, I said, okay, here's the company, here's the price, here's the, you know, all this. And they came back, they're like, hey, we're not going to do that. They decided they didn't want to give, do, you know, put the money up. Yeah. And again, I thought, okay, I'm going to make sure they regret telling me no. 
Um, 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 but anyway, so which I think you've done. I think I think you I think you scratched that itch for sure. So then I was like, oh my gosh! I remember going home and being like, I just ruined like my family's life. I just bet everything on this deal, and like I, I backed out. It, yeah, it's not gonna work. So I felt bad for myself for like a day, and then I'm like, okay, I gotta go find money. So I went and to like find some capital to fund the deal. The problem was, is that I only had them locked up under like exclusivity for a period of time. And I got to the end of that time and I, I had some people interested in, in financing it, but not no one that's like, here's the money. Yeah. So I'm like, oh, I don't, I don't I don't know what I'm going to do. And so I went to Keith and Todd were at the U S golf open down in New York mm-hmm. and I was in Boston and I said, Hey, let's talk, you know, where we're at, we're out of exclusivity. I, I don't have, you know, like I don't have all the money yet. So I went and talked to them. And I remember at that dinner, Todd, you know, Todd kind of understood what it was I wanted to, to do in, in buying the company and really helping them execute on their vision of being able to turn it into a full service alarm company and, and all of that. And Todd kind of at the dinner said, look, why don't you just come do that? And you can keep raising the money. And and so that's what I decided I would go do Um, was like join the company and keep trying to find the capital to go fund kind of this transformation. So I joined I joined Vivin or Apex Alarm and then kind of continued to work with the groups that I'd been working with. And so pretty shortly after that, um, was able to get a group out of New York, a Peterson Partners and Jupiter Partners in New York and Goldman Sachs Specialty Situations to come and to actually buy half the company and then put in place a credit facility that was kind of the beginning of the whole transformation of Apex Alarm into Vivint Smart Home and Vivint Solar. Yeah. And so, so then we moved back wow. to Utah. Honestly, I was like broke. In fact, I probably was like, 60 or $70,000 in the hole when like I moved back and we moved in with my mom, um, up in Salt Lake. And, you know, so yes, I was like a 32 year old with three kids living in my mom's basement. Um, um, and that's why, again, I say like Debbie has been so important because she was like, she believed in me all through that. And, and then just started like working with Todd, and so maybe was it was a little bit of delusional belief then yeah. on Debbie's part, maybe a little bit. A hundred percent. It was. Like, That's awesome. <laughs> it, it absolutely was. Like there was no proof there that it was going to turn out well. And so started working with them to kind of build Vivin. So that's unreal. I've, I've never heard that. And that's obviously my full-time career right now, which is, that's crazy. I've never really heard the origin story of that. So then your run at Vivint lasted about 14 years. About is, 14 years. Yeah, when crazy. I, when I got involved, you were acting president of the company. Yep. Right. And along that journey, I'm sure a ton, I know a ton happened, actually. Yeah. Along those 14 years, what would you say were some of the most, like, catalyst-type moments that were the big moments? And, like, where do you feel like you went? Because you obviously fulfilled. You obviously went and did exactly what you got into Vivint to go and do, or Apex at the time to go a and do. A lot more, honestly. Yeah. Like, than Truly. I would ever imagined yeah there was look there was like some pivotal times for the company the first one was like we originally just started out being a dealer so we would create accounts for adt or for monotronics yeah and so the first part of the idea or strategy was well let's go actually keep customers ourselves and we get the monthly recurring revenue over the life of the customer and so that was like the first big kind of transformation yeah the second one was we were selling someone else's hardware. And so this it was like, and honestly, it was not very good. I mean, the the Honeywell alarm panels were like 20 years old, hadn't been any innovation. Yeah. And so this honestly is where the smart home piece of this started was like, what if we could put in hardware that like could do more than security, could like control lighting and thermostats and door locks and all those things but they're actually it did not exist the hardware 
that we wanted to put in that had all the security stuff integrated with all the smart home stuff at a price point that we needed it to be at didn't exist. Yeah. So we went to Honeywell. We were their second largest security customer behind ADT and said, hey, we've built a spec for a panel, like a, a hub that we want you to build and we'll put money in to help develop it and we'll buy it. And we were in this meeting and the, the president of, of the Honeywell you know, division, the Honeywell security division was like super condescending and was like kind of like patted us on the head. And he's like, Hey, you guys go knock on doors and let, let the big boys do the real work. You know, there's another chip on your shoulder. Yeah. And honestly, (laughs) I remember like walking out thinking I'm going to make sure like he knows he's going to regret like saying no to us. Um, there, there seems to be a theme here. Like, I think I'm there like, is. I think I'm you're discovering a theme. <laughs> you're connecting the dots right now, as Steve Jobs would say. You're connecting the dots. And so we actually went and started a hardware company called Two Gig. Yep. And designed the hardware that we wanted, mm-hmm. and that was like the next big step into. We don't just do security. We're selling thermostats and door locks and lighting and. And garage door, like smart home, that's where smart home started. Yeah. Um, so that was like a big step in the evolution of the company. Another one was I got a call from one of the partners at Goldman and he said, hey, do you think you could sell solar? And this was, I bet you it was 2009, 2010. Yeah. I mean, this was a long time ago. Yeah. I'm like, well, yeah, we can sell anything, but like, why are you asking me? And that was like the beginning of like that group went through and like explained tax equity to me, mm-hmm. which at the time was like sounded too good to be true. And I kept saying to him, like, this cannot be true. Like what you're telling me about tax equity can't be true. They're like, no, it is. This is these are the laws. And here, you know, it just got put in place. And initially, not many people know this, but initially our solar, the solar company was going to be a joint venture with Goldman Sachs. Mm. And we were going to own 50% and they were going to own 50% and we were going to go like start this residential solar company. And it went all the way up to um, Lloyd Blankfein, the CEO. And he said, we're not going to do that. I think they were worried about like reputational risk, like an old lady's power, not work. And, you know, like, so they said no. And so that group had to come back. We had like built the plan out and everything. Yeah. They're like, hey, we, you know. We, we can't do this. And I'm like, well, you're okay if we go do it, right? Now, the funny thing is they owned, you know, part of the, Smart Home. Yeah. And so they got ownership in the solar business. It just wasn't like a joint venture. We just went and yeah, did yeah. kind of on our own. And so that was how we started solar. And then, you know, there's a whole story about that. And so, you know, one of the things I'm proud of is like we kept kind of reinventing ourselves. Yeah. Um, even as we got bigger and bigger, which becomes harder and harder to do. The bigger you get. The bigger you get, yep. it becomes a lot harder to be like, hey, let's go try something new or different or change. But I think it's what kind of led to the success. And so the truth is like when I did the original LOI, I think was at a million valuation, you know, so like 20 million to buy half the company. And the year that I left, um, Vivint between Vivint Smart Home and Vivint Solar, like enterprise value was like, you know, somewhere in the neighborhood of $12 billion. Um, and so like over the course of that 14 years, you know, we had really honestly not set out to do that. Yeah. Like we had set out to like, we had solid like principles, like, Hey, you work hard and be smart and do all these things. But w- when I first went to apex, I'm like, I think we could build like a $250 million business. Yeah. And it was actually Todd who was the first one who's like in a conversation with me was like, I think we could maybe build a billion dollar business. And I, at first I was like, you're, you're crazy. Stu- yeah. You're crazy. That's <laughs> stupid. And then I kind of thought about it for a day and I'm like, Actually, why couldn't we do that? Like it would just be doing what we're doing, just more than scale. just more. And my relationship with Todd was a lot like that. I think we pushed each other. We were very complimentary. We had complimentary skills. Yeah. And so it was an amazing kind of partnership with Todd. 
Yeah. We actually never fought. I think we only fought like one time in the whole whole time I was there. He's he was it was an awesome, awesome partnership. You fought one time. You said it, so now I'm gonna ask and you, if you don't wanna tell, you don't have to. You no, fought one you. time. What did you fight out? What was the fight? It was it was actually over our wireless business, the fixed wire the internet mm. the internet business. Yep. Yeah. We just had a different I would not want to be in the room for that fight. That's it, what I honestly say. when I say fight, it wasn't like we would annoy each other, you know, like when you go do the road shows and you're like giving the same presentation like every hour for ten hours for like weeks and weeks. Yeah. Like yeah, you get sick I mean, of each other. I would. I was sick of his stupid jokes. He was sick of my stupid jokes. Like, yeah. But we never like got mad at each other. That's awesome. And um, we had you know an amazing partnership. He was an amazing partner who gave me like a ton of latitude to come into his company and be able to you know make an impact. Yeah, that's really really cool. And that's like bird's eye view of that fourteen year span of Vivint, which is so cool. Which is where I still. That's that's my career again, obviously. Yeah. That's really cool. I think so many people, because I've never heard that. A lot of that I've never heard at all. And I, I know so many people haven't either, and they're going to go and eat. That's going to be so cool to go in here. So then 14 years, you obviously went and did, did what you were supposed to do and way more. And then retirement, right? Yep. That was yep. when a, a temporary retirement kind of came. And that's also when you moved your family to Puerto Rico, same timeline. Yeah. Right. And, and thought process going into that, because moving around growing up, you mentioned it a little bit and I said, we talk about it. So I'm curious your thought process going into moving to Puerto Rico and then after the fact. So the retirement is an important part of that for me. I never wanted to like be hanging on to like, I believe there's like beginnings and ends. There's like chapters. And it's okay to, it's okay for something to be done. Yeah. You know, just my personality. It's like, I'd rather like end on top than being the, you know, like the 60 year old playing basketball at, you know, church, like, and the, getting like, invited yeah, should, all the- yeah, like he should have retired, you know, 20 years ago. Yeah. And so at Vivint, I felt like I had like done what I needed to do. I felt a, ton of obligation to Todd. I felt a ton of obligation to Blackstone and that they had bet on, on the company, but they had bet on me. They had bet on Todd. And I like wanted to make sure that like I fulfilled, you know, what obligations I felt like I had to the people that had made bets on me and, and on the company. Yeah. And so it just got to a point where I felt like I had like done that. And that it was time for me to be done. Yeah. Um, and I remember texting Todd, like we were in the process of going public. And so every time we reached a major milestone, we would go through the team and like kind of identify like, okay, are the right people in the right seats? Are there people that it's maybe best for them to move on? Are there people that we need to move up and kind of build the team for the next stage of the company? Yeah. And so I was in the process of doing that. And meeting, I'd met with all the executive team and I told Todd like over Christmas, like, hey, I'll send you kind of my analysis on like where everybody's at and are people committed for the next stage as we go public and all that. And I remember sending him like the message like, hey, here are people that, you know, I think are interested in moving on. And at the end of the list, I actually put my name. You put (laughs) your name on the list. I put my name on the list. (laughs) And he's like, Hey, do we need to talk? I'm like, no, you know, just, he was, he was, I can't remember where he was at Mexico or somewhere. I'm like, no, we'll talk when you get back, you know? Yeah. (laughs) So he came back and like, I think at first was like, I don't want to have this conversation, you know? So I'm like, okay. I definitely was like, I am not going to leave you, you know, in a bad situation. But then I think he kind of started warming up to it and would like, it was like a week later, he like asked me, why did you say, you know, like I could tell he was kind of churning on it. Yeah. And honestly, he was the one who I cared the most about. I'm like, I really didn't want to leave if he was going to feel like somehow I was like abandoning him Yeah. Um, or the company. But he got to a place where he's like, if this is what you want, you know, mm-hmm. um, I'm OK. He kind of released me, honestly. Yeah. And I remember that night, like the weight that was like lifted off of my shoulders that night was like, palp- like my Debbie could see it in me. And it just goes to speak to like there was a beginning and an end. And I loved it all. 
Yeah. It's like, I love the beginning. I love the middle and I love the end. It's like, I was able to walk away having built something amazing with amazing people and to be proud of that and excited to look at what the next chapter in my life was going to be for sure. And so I feel as good, honestly, about like how I left Vivint as how I came into to Vivint. Yeah. And so then I left, it was literally like, um, and kind of Todd was okay with it. And then we kind of had to work through with Blackstone and they were actually super gracious, um, about it. And so I kind of felt like with both Blackstone and with Todd, like I had like kind of fulfilled, fulfilled the commitment that I had given to them and the expectation they had of me. And so, um, it was, so then we like picked the day that was my last day and we'd worked out like all that stuff. My last day comes, it's like a week later and the world shut down because of COVID. I mean, literally like the next week that happened. Yeah. And I was like, you know, trying to, well, actually I was just like, I'm going to take time and like decompress and just kind of let, you know, whatever's supposed to happen next kind of come to me. But I had always wanted to give my kids the same experience I had had growing up. Yeah. And at this point, we had three actually that were out of the house and three that were still living at home. And and so that's when I kind of said to Debbie, I'm like, hey, this is maybe our time to go like move somewhere. Yeah. And so we started thinking about like all over, like South America, Australia, like I think it'd be kind of cool to go live in Italy, like on the Mediterranean and like, yeah. you know, like in a small, not like a big place, like in a small area where you like, you know, go to the bakery every morning and like, you know. Yeah, totally. It probably sounds cooler than it is. Like probably second week you'd be like, this is like. <laughs> You're like, I'm sick. Of, yeah. I'm sick of this. I'm sick of this French bread, you know, <laughs> Italian bread. But anyway, so then COVID hit and like all these places were getting shut down and, you know. And so we had a good friend um, who was living in Puerto Rico. And I'm like, hey, maybe we should like consider Puerto Rico. It's you can be there on a U.S. passport like we won't get stuck there. Like it's under U.S. rule. Like So it's not like we'll go there and be like, oh, we're stuck. We can't come back to the U.S. Yeah. And so we we went down there for um, Debbie's birthday. And I said I said to her, let's like go down with the intention of deciding if this could be a place we could live. Yeah. Which is different than a vacation. Cause it's like, well, then she's like, well, I want to go to the grocery store and I want to like go to the school and yeah, you know, totally. like, see what it's like living there. Yeah. So we went down and kind of when we came back, I was like sold. So for Debbie's birthday, she was doing elementary school tours and junior well, high school we tours. We were staying at like, <laughs> like the super nice resort. So it wasn't, it was like a mixture of the two things. I believe it. Um, I mean, you've been there. I have been there. there. One of my favorite places on the planet. Yeah. So we went and it took a couple months, I think, for everyone to kind of kind of process that. I having been through it, I knew that my kids who were going to go were going to be unhappy at some point. Yeah. At the time, they actually all were pretty excited. Really? Out the gates? Yeah. Like I didn't know that. Because I know how it was when they got there. (laughs) I know how that was. And so actually what I said was, this has to be a unanimous, everybody gets a vote, and it has to be unanimous. If it's not unanimous, we're not going to go. Yeah. And Debbie was kind of reluctant. Clara, my my youngest daughter, was kind of reluctant. The funny thing is when we got there and Clara was like not really not happy for a little while, she actually kind of learned the same things that I did and that, you know, it ended up being an amazing experience for her, but she was not happy for a while. Yeah. And I, I would tell her like, Hey, we voted on this and you, you voted to come like, and she's like, I just voted because I thought mom was going to vote no. (laughs) And, you know, Debbie was like, I thought Clara was going to vote no. So I voted yes. You know, like. Um, was this a blind vote? Yeah, no, it was open. Everybody was open. Oh, they could awesome. change it, you know. <laughs> so, so yeah. So then we moved to Puerto Rico, and we were down there for two years and had an amazing, amazing experience. That my second youngest graduated from high school down there. Yeah, and has good friends and played basketball. The she tried out for the basketball team in Puerto Rico. It was a, a private school there. 
the first time she played basketball was the night before tryouts when I took her up to the basketball court because she's like, I, you got to show me how to play basketball. I'm like, I don't think it happens in a few hours, but <laughs> I'll like, you know, made the team, won state championship, had tons of friends, like, and loves Puerto Rico. Like, yeah. Loves it. Clara, my youngest daughter, you know, had a really hard time, like yeah. adjusting and making friends, but was by the time we left was like crying. To like, leave. And, yeah. She yep. was so sad to leave. And I think she told me closer to the end when we were there, because when we go to Puerto Rico, she was like, kind of like, I miss my friends in Utah and my friend this and that. And then we would like come to Utah for Christmas or for the summer. And then her friends in Puerto Rico, you know, it was like, yeah. And, and she kind of came to me and she's like, I actually have learned a lesson. I'm like, what, what have you learned? She's like, I've actually learned that it's not Puerto Rico that makes me happy or not Utah that makes me happy. It's like how I respond to the situations that make that like determines my happiness. And you're just like, yes, uh, honestly, like- I'm like, that is why we, I wanted to have this experience. Yeah. Was to have my kids learn those kinds of lessons. So yeah. it was awesome. That's amazing. Like, and I want to be respectful of your time. Obviously we've already, it's already been an hour. It flies by. Isn't that Sorry. crazy? No, no, you're good to go. And like, that was two years, right? Two and a half years. We were there for just over two years. Right. And now, now your role at Larry H. Miller is super new. So there's probably not a ton of stories yet, but yeah. your, your title right now is what at Larry H. Miller? So I am a managing partner at Larry H. Miller. Larry H. Look, Larry H. Miller is an amazing organization. They're an amazing family. Uh, as you know, Gail and Larry like started the car dealerships, bought the Utah Jazz when they were about to leave Utah, built those businesses up, and very recently essentially sold the car dealerships and sold the Jazz to, to Ryan Smith. And so now are in a position where the platform has a lot of capital because they generated that through the sale of those businesses yeah. that they need to go put to work in kind of what the next generation of Larry H. Miller looks like yeah. Um, in those in companies and go invest that. And so I joined Larry H. Miller. Steve Starks is the CEO there. We became awesome friends when we negotiated the naming rights deal of where the jazz play, you know, the, yeah. the, the Vivint Arena, soon to be back to the Delta Center. And so I got to know him. Uh, through that. And it was really actually last summer that he, we were having lunch. I was kind of sharing some ideas about things that I was thinking about. He, and he said, would you ever kind of consider coming and, you know, to LHM? And at first I was a little bit reluctant because I didn't understand the family dynamic and kind of really much of the company at all. Yeah. Uh, But over time I got really comfortable and then I got really excited about what um, the opportunity to go build. And I know kind of sounds weird. They, they, it's like a 40 year old, you know, like, or more company Yeah. to say there's like opportunities to go build, but actually there, there is, um, yeah. there's a ton of capital. Their philanthropic focus is amazing what they do for the community. So being a part of that is so awesome. And so I'm really excited to be partnered with Steve and Dave Smith and the other team members at Larry H. Miller to go invest in kind of the next generation of great companies yeah, and partner with them and help them grow and use all the experience that I've had up until now to kind of bring value there. That's so, super cool. So that's why we moved back from Puerto Rico was for me to, you know, have this next, next chapter. Great, yeah. Um, opportunity. And I think not think for sure if there what if if I wasn't doing that we would still still be in Puerto Rico. That's amazing. That's really cool. I'm excited to go and see kind of what that unfolds to be. That'll be fun, yep. dude. So so much gold, and this is like I probably enjoy this more than anybody else a thousand percent actually because I feel like I know you so well. Yet I literally for the last hour I've just heard so much I've never heard, and there's not really many times where you go talk about this stuff. So it's fun to to go in here. And it shows a lot of why you are you and how you are you, um, which is really cool. To kind of close it out, because, again, I want to be respectful of everybody's time. Obviously, the name of the podcast is Today's the Day. The idea behind that and, and kind of the, the point of that is, in my opinion, the times where I'm the most fulfilled and also accomplishing the most, so on and so forth in life, is if I'm approaching things with the perspective of, like, today's the day. Like, this is all I've got. 
tomorrow you have no idea yep. yesterday's already done so today's the day yep. and we're really particular about who we bring on in the sense of we only want people that kind of live that whether they realize it or not and clearly you obviously do like there's no way to go and do what you've done unless you do um if you were to have one piece of advice for anybody as to why that might be important or how that came to be with you, whatever it may be, the importance of that, what would it be? Or one bit of advice to make sure you're approaching life with that perspective. Yeah. So I became uh, good friends with the dean, the I think the former dean of the law school at BYU. And everybody's heard the, the statement from Stephen Covey, um, which is uh, begin with the end in mind which I actually think is important. You have to have like kind of something you're working towards. Yep. I think he actually kind of twisted that um, statement in a way that I loved and really, really, really resonated with me, which is I think a lot of people don't begin because they're not totally sure what the end is going to be. And there's mm. a lot of uncertainty around it. And it's like, what if I fail? And they focus a lot on the end and it prevents them from actually beginning because it's like, oh, it's like, I can't do that. Or it's too, over I'm not, I'm going to look stupid. I'm going to whatever. It's like the fear of beginning because it's like the, you're looking at the end. Yeah. And he actually had a statement with, which was, which I love, which is just begin. Yeah. Like, and I can tell you that that like rung true to me, like to my core. Because I think what happens is I've always kind of thought, oh, here's what I'm, here's what my end is. Yeah. And then I'll go begin. And I'll very quickly realize like the end that I thought I wanted was like not anywhere near. And because like I learned by beginning, I'm like, oh, all those things I thought about or thought were true are not true. Exactly. This was a stupid idea. This didn't work. This was like, and then what I realized was it was actually the process that was teaching me, like the process of like beginning yeah. and doing. Yeah. And so then it, it, what's important is how fast can I iterate? Meaning if I have an idea, it's really important to just begin and like go do something today to like make that idea become a reality yeah. because the idea you start with never, never, ever is the thing you end up with. doing and so actually doing becomes way more important than like imagining the end <laughs> i think there's a lot of people that waste a ton of time trying to imagine the end now yeah. there's a balance you have you can't you have to have something you're kind of working towards yeah and so when people come and say hey i want to be an entrepreneur i'm like well it's super easy they're like How, what do i have to do say start a business <laughs> that's like what an entrepreneur does like <laughs> If you want to be an entrepreneur, start a company. Well, I don't know. I'm like, well, nobody does. Like, go sell lemonade. If you go start a lemonade stand, you're an entrepreneur. <laughs> like, that's how you become one. Um, and I'm really, really big on that, which is today's day. It's like, just begin with the end in mind is good. What's better is just begin. Yeah. Try something. Yeah. Like, go try something. Even if it fails, you'll be way better off having done something today that fails then like not done something because you were scared to fail. That's so true. That is so gold. I love that. That's like, that's a really unique answer. Like probably that that's the first time we've had that answer, which I, I love. And that's awesome. And then again, like from the bottom of my heart, thank you so much for making it out here. I appreciate you more than just the podcast, but I appreciate you for being out here and everybody else that tuned in. Thank you guys for tuning in. Much love. Thank you guys so much for tuning in today. Um, as always, it was a blast for me. I hope you got something out of this. If you got something out of this video of value, share this with a friend and please go show your love. We're on all streaming platforms, including YouTube, Spotify, and Apple. Any ratings, comments, likes, shares, they go a very long way and they make it so I can keep doing these things for you. And I would appreciate it greatly. So please go share with a friend. Until next time.